Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to another. S- welcome to a special segment of our to the Bible in one year installment. So we will be covering days two o seven through two. In this particular segment. So, just a brief reminder of what your assignments were for your daily Bible reading in order for you to be prepared for all of these discussions. Them to you once again. So for day 207, which would have been July the 26th, which would have been Tuesday, right? So your reading assignments were Second Chronicles 17 through 18, Romans 9 25 through 10. 13, Psalm 20, 1 through 9, and Proverbs 20, 2 through 3. So that's day 207. That was Tuesday the 26th. Now for Wednesday the 27th, which would have been day 208. Here's what your reading assignments were. For that day, was Second Chronicles 19 and 20, Romans 10, 14 through 11, 12, Psalm 21, 1 through 13, and Proverbs 20, verses 4 through 6. So that was Wednesday the 27th. For Thursday the 28th, which would be day 209, your assignment was to read 2 Chronicles 21 through 23, Romans 11, 13 through 36, Psalm 22, 1 through 18, in Proverbs 20, verse 7. So finally we come to today's assignment, which will be for the 29th, or day 210. And here's what your reading assignment was for today. So it was Second Chronicles 24 through 25, Romans chapter 12, Psalm 22, 19 through 31, and Proverbs 20, verses 8 through 10. So now let's get into or to the Bible in one year segment. So we're in the book of Acts, and so we're going to be picking up with Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 10, verse 23, and we're going to be going through 
chapter 12, verse 19. A, so we're going to be in Acts chapter 10, verse 23b, through Acts chapter 12, verse 19. A. So, what we have seen so far, right, in our journey through Acts, particularly in Acts chapter 10, right, we've seen Cornelius visited by an angel, and then we saw that angel tell him to send men to Joppa in order to find a man there by the name of Peter. And so, that's what we saw on day 205, right? So, the next day, day 206, we saw Peter's vision concerning the taking of the gospel to the Gentiles. And so, we then finished day 206, which would have been Monday, the 25th, right, with Cornelius' search party arriving at the home of Simon the Tanner, where Peter was staying, and so what we're now going to see moving forward with this is Peter going with these men to visit Cornelius in his home. That's we're going to pick up in Acts 10, verse 23b, going through verse 29, to start off with. So this is what that says. It says, the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, <coughs> Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said, I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people and said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? So given how the meeting was set up by an angel, it's no wonder right, that Cornelius gathered up his friends and his family to hear the message that Peter was going to be telling him, right? So what we then see, right, is Cornelius attempting to worship Peter, quite possibly, right, because he was overwhelmed by this experience. 
what we see that Peter rightly rejects this worship. Why does Peter rightly reject this worship? Right? Because he was himself just a man, as Cornelius himself was just a man. So here we see that Peter goes to a great length to explain, right? To explain the unusual nature of this event. So what are we talking about here, right? So after Peter tells him to get up, stand up. After, after Peter made him get up, and, said he, and he said, stand up, I am only a man myself, right? And then goes on to say, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Right. So, what we see here that he explained the unusual nature of this. The unusual nature of this was that Jewish people in the first century did not go into the homes of non-Jewish people, of Gentile people, for the fear that it would make them unclean. And so Peter's explained this to these people so they won't be so shocked Right, that, hmm, why, why, why is Peter having to explain this to us? It, it doesn't even make any sense to us what Peter is saying. So the reason for this prohibition was not biblical. So there's nothing in the Bible that says you can't go into the home. That a Jewish person could not go into the home of a non-Jewish person. There's nothing in the Old Testament that says that there are prohibitions in the Old Testament against marrying into, or for Jewish people to marry into non-Jewish families, but that's the only prohibition. There is no prohibition against entering their home. This was about their maintaining their moral superiority. However, Biblical, it was a common practice in Judaism of that time, in first century Judaism. <coughs> so, however, however, what we see here is that Peter clearly understood the nature of his vision. That he was to call no human being, he was to call nothing made in the image of God unclean. So, in other words, what Peter's was is that the gospel is for all people. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Gentiles, but it is for all people. Right? So now let's pick up in verse 30, and we're going to go through verse 36. Here's what it says. It says, Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying. 
this hour at three in the afternoon suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said cornelius god has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor send us uh, send a joppa for simon who is called peter he is a guest in the home of simon the tanner who lives by the sea so i sent for you immediately and it was a good of you to come now we are all here in the presence of god to listen to everything the lord has commanded you to tell us and peter began to speak i now realize how true it is that god does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right you know the message god sent to the people of israel announcing the good news of peace through jesus christ who is lord of all lord of all so in verses 30 through 33 which is the very part of that which right which is the verses that say uh Three days ago, I was in my house, praying this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a job for Simon, who is called Peter. He has a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now all here are now we now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to say to us. So that's verses thirty through thirty-three, right? That's where Cornelius says those those verses are Cornelius essentially reviewing the angelic visitation that occurred all the way back in verses three through eight. So then in those next two verses, right? We see that Peter prefaces his words to the crowd with com- with a compact confirmation of the gospel. So what are we talking about there? Right? So the verses that say uh, that then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know, the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. So what are we saying here, right? <clears throat> so the first thing, right, is that in this con- compact confirmation of the gospel, right, the first thing we see is that God welcomes the ones who fear him, right, so this suggests a healthy fear of God is proper for a person to come to Christ, so that's the first thing we see in this con confirmation of the gospel. 
The second thing that we see is that believers do what is right. Which is, in other words, suggesting repentance and a whole new way of life. So now we're going to pick up in verse 37 and we're going to go through verse 43 which says this you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached how God appointed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing healing all who were under the power of the devil because God has sent him we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem they killed him by hanging him on a cross but God raised him from the dead on the third day caused him to be seen he was not seen by all the people but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name through his name so the first part of Peter's address rehearses the life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ right? so that's the part that says right uh, you you know what um, <coughs> you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how He went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with Him, right? So that's the where He rehearsed the life. And now he's going to get to where he rehearses the death, right? So he says, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So in other words, what we're seeing here is that as an eyewitness, Peter affirms the truth of the claims and offers evidence of numerous post-resurrection encounters. So then in this next part, right, Peter goes on to say, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So all the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins 
through his name. So we see here what what's Peter telling us, right? So Peter's telling us here the apostles had been ordered to spread the word of what had happened. Right? And so Peter then goes on telling on the word of God, on the Old Testament, and the words of the prophets to essentially, right? as the final authority here, right? So he's not saying, hey, look, we just made all this stuff up so that we could have some power, a little bit of power, no, 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 right? So we were ordered to spread the word, but this word that we were talking about, right, was based on what the scriptures said was gonna happen. And so the just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on here, right? So we see that while Peter was still speaking, the words that he was speaking to them, to Cornelius and his family, to Cornelius and his close friends, what happens, what happens, right, right, it says the Holy Spirit came on them, came on all who heard the word, 
was on the scene, that the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished at the gift of the Holy Spirit and were poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. So let's get right down to the nitty-gritty here, right? So the nitty-gritty of this is that the speaking in tongues was an important evidence. It wasn't the only evidence, but it was an important piece of evidence that the Gentiles were saved as Gentiles. Because what happened on Pentecost, right, when the disciples received the Holy Spirit, when they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, what did they begin to do? They began to speak in tongues. Right? They spoke in wings that everybody who was there could understand them. Right? They spoke so the large crowds that had gathered for the feast of Pentecost could understand them. Right? So, and it was this fact, this fact that amazed the Jewish hearers, right? The people that had come when Peter, they were amazed. Because they didn't, they, they, they knew that it was possible, right? But knowing something is possible doesn't necessarily mean you think that it's something that's actually gonna happen. But you see, these people didn't actually think that what they saw happening was ever gonna happen. And so what we see here is that Peter was the one who was instrumental in this happening, right? Peter goes and he speaks the word that God told him to go and speak to these people through the Holy Spirit. And what does Peter do? Peter goes and speaks the word that the Spirit told him to do. Right? And it was his experience right here that would become unvaluable at a big council we're going to see that happens in Jerusalem over in Acts chapter 15. We're not there yet, but we will get there. And so we need to hold on to that thought for just a little bit, right? <coughs> so in Acts 10 verse 47, right? So his remark about the baptism, right? So that's the part that says, right? <coughs> Uh, Surely uh, no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So the first part, so that part says, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. Here's what Peter is saying there, right? So what he's saying there, what it meant is essentially this. It is impossible to deny them baptism. So we know that the Holy Spirit has come down on them and has filled them up, right? They've been baptized in the Spirit, which means they were saved right then and right there. There was nothing else that needed to be done. They were saved. Understand that part, so they were saved. It's impossible to deny them baptism because water baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. Get what I'm saying there, right? So, 
in the water, and that is not an essential element of salvation. Water baptism is you telling the entire rest of the world, hey, I'm saved. That's what water baptism is. So what we need to understand here is that for the Gentiles, for Cornelius and his entire family, for Cornelius and his immediate friends, for Cornelius and his close friends, the prerequisites for water baptism had been completed, and the only prerequisite for that is faith in Christ. Whether or not 
one is from the Holy Spirit, and remote one ain't from the Holy Spirit. So what are we talking about right here, right? So over in First John, John writes these words. That's First John four one. We do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So John himself is telling us the exact same thing, and it's the same thing that we are told over and over and over again throughout. New Testament. We gotta test what we're being told. We gotta put it to the test, right? So the following biblical principles that I'm about ready to give you give guidance when we are trying to determine whether a person who claims or who appears who have been baptized in the Holy Spirit has truly had an experience from God. So these are the biblical principles you gotta look at, right? So the first one you gotta look at is a is that a genuine baptism in the Holy Spirit will inspire us to love, honor, and worship God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ more than before. So when you understand about that is that it is the Holy Spirit who causes the love or causes love the love for God to grow in our hearts. Right? But any 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 the key word there is any spiritual experience that draws our attention, prayers, worship, or affection toward anything other than God and the Lord Jesus is not from God. So that's the first one. So the second biblical principle is a genuine baptism in the Holy Spirit will make us more attentive to our relationship with the Heavenly Father, thus assuring us that He loves and cares for us as His children. So it will also lead to a greater awareness of Christ's presence in our daily lives, but, again, this is the key word, any spiritual experience that does not result in this, that does not result in a deeper relationship with Christ, and a deeper awareness of God's care and compassion, uh, companionship, excuse me, is not from God. So that's the second one. The third one is that a genuine baptism in the Holy Spirit will cause a greater love for and appreciation of God's Word. So we understand here that the Spirit of Truth inspired those who wrote God's Word to write exactly what God wanted to communicate and that He will deepen our love for and our devotion to the truth of God's word. But, and again, this is the way every single one of these is going to end, right? But any, came with there again, is any spiritual experience that does not increase our hunger to read and obey God's word is not from God. The keyword there is not from God. 
So now moving on to the fourth one, right? So the fourth is that a genuine baptism in the Holy Spirit will deepen our love and concern for other followers of Christ. So in other words, what we're saying there is that true Christian companionship and community must be based on unity that comes from the Spirit. And again, and again, any spiritual experience that hinders or lessens our love for those who truly aim to follow Jesus, right, as the authority in their lives is not from God. Are you sensing a theme and a pattern here, right? You gotta look at what the experience is doing, right? Is this experience drawing you closer to God? Or is this experience experience making you drift away from God? So that was the fourth one, right? <coughs> so the fifth one is that a genuine baptism in the Holy Spirit must be preceded, preceded by true repentance and faithful obedience to whom? To Christ. As you see, the spiritual effects and the influence of the baptism in the Spirit will continue as long as we allow God's Spirit to keep purifying our lives, developing our character, and preparing us for God's purposes. So this includes depending on the Holy Spirit to lead us and to help us overcome the sinful tendencies of our human nature, right? In other words, we have to put to death the misdeeds of the body and to be led by the Spirit of God. So you should recognize those two verses, right? Those come out of Romans 8 verses 13 and 14. And again, right, any person who has not accepted Christ's forgiveness and been set free from sin cannot, keyword there is, cannot experience a true baptism in the Holy Spirit. And any power that appears to be on that person is from another source and is likely, keyword there is likely, right, the deceptive activity of Satan. So now let's move on to the sixth, right, which is a genuine baptism in the Holy Spirit will increase our dissatisfaction with any activities that offend God and defy his spiritually pure nature. It will also turn us from the selfish 
selfish, excuse me, selfish pursuit of earthly riches and reputation, but in the spiritual experience that allows the acceptance of ungodly beliefs, behaviors, and lifestyles that are common in the world is not from God. So this is because the true followers of Christ have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. And that comes out of Second Corinthians 2, 12. So now moving on to the seventh principle, which is a genuine baptism in the Holy Spirit will give us the greater desire and power to spread the message about forgiveness, spiritual salvation, and the gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus. But any spiritual experience that does not result in a greater desire to see others come to know Christ personally is again not from God. You're catching the theme here again, right? The theme is still the same. We've got to test everything to see if it fulfills what God's ultimate mission is in this world, which is not to condemn the world, but to save the world. I know that's a difficult thing for some of y'all to get. It's a difficult thing for some of y'all to understand. But that is what God's ultimate mission is. It's to save the world, not to make the world a bad place. It's to make the world a much better place. was the seventh. Now we're moving to the eighth. So we got two more because there's nine of them in case you were wondering. So this eighth principle is that a genuine baptism of the Holy Spirit will cause us to be more open and receptive to the Spirit's work and purposes within the church as a whole and in our individual lives. So this also includes the exercise of spiritual gifts, including the gifts of speaking in tongues, which is presented in Acts, and the initial outward sign of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So you may not be able to speak in tongues, but you should also there should be other signs that you have been baptized in the Spirit, so you need to test everything by these nine principles. I'll get ready to give you the ninth here in just a few minutes, right? However, I want you to remember that any spiritual experience that does not result in more obvious works in the Spirit in our lives is not consistent with the experience of New Testament Christian or New Testament Christianity as described in the book of Acts. So now we come to this ninth and final principle, right? So 
Christians that a genuine baptism in the Holy Spirit will cause us to be more conscious of the work, guidance, and presence of the Holy Spirit in our daily lives. And after being baptized in the Spirit, the New Testament followers of Christ were continually conscious of the Spirit's presence, power, and guidance. And again, again, in spiritual experience that does not increase our awareness, does not increase our awareness of the Spirit's presence, and strengthen our desire to follow His leading, is not a genuine experience of God's Spirit. So, in addition to that, anything that does not reinforce our goal, our goal to please God, to accomplish His purposes for our lives, and to live in such a way that we promote His work in every respect is not a genuine spiritual experience. So now we're going to move on into chapter 11. So what's going to happen over in chapter 11? So glad you asked what's going to happen over in chapter 11. So what is going to happen over in Acts chapter 11, particularly the first 18 verses, is that we're going to see the conclusion of this telling of Cornelius' conversion experience. So what do we mean by the conclusion, right? So what we mean by that is we're going to see that Peter is going to be called out by minority sect. Right, uh, by oh, excuse me, by a specific minority sect within the early church, because he had dared to go and hang out with, and more importantly, take the gospel to those who were not Jewish. Right, but we, but what, what we're going to also see, and this is more important is that Peter gave this great defense for his actions that this minority sect in the early church saw as being wrong. And it was this great defense that led the entire church to accept what had happened to Cornelius and to his immediate family into his um into his close friends as being from God. Right. So now we're gonna pick up in Acts chapter eleven verse one and now and we're gonna go through verse twelve. So here's what that says. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate 
with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa, praying in a trance. I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheep being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up into heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped the house where I was praying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them, these six brothers. And six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And we entered the man's house. So let's see here, this story now shifts from the events to the defense of the events that took place. So we go from a description of the events, we go from seeing the events in first-hand detail to seeing the defense of these events before a group of people who thought that these events should not have ever happened. Right. So another one, what happened is that the news of the Gentile salvation, right, has moved throughout Judea, right, it's moved throughout Judea, and what is particularly noticeable is that the only group who objected to this, who had anything to say, about this that was in any way, shape, or form negative is the circumcision party. It was this group of people who felt that the Gentiles had to become, in essence, Jewish before they could be saved. That is essentially what the circumcision party was all about. I know that's kind of hard to believe in this day and age, but that is what the circumcision party was all about. So, so since there is no demand, or no discussion of a demand, for circumcision, these people were probably not the Judaizers that were going to say in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, but they would have completely and totally agreed with them that, hey, if you're not Jewish, and you want 
to become part of this new, in their minds, new Jewish sect, then you need to follow the laws and the rules of Judaism. Following with me so far? Right? They would have completely and totally agreed with the Judaizers as we see them over in Acts chapter 15. However, what we see starting here in verse 11, right, and then running through chapter uh, verse 23, is we see Peter give a description that say, oh, excuse me, uh, he gives a he put a pretty good description that is a short recap of what we saw happening in Acts chapter 10 verses 11 through 23, right? So it's only with a few minor variations, right? So now we come to this part, right, where it says these six brothers also went with me. So what is that all I'm talking about, right? So when Peter made that comment about the six brothers going with him, what is he saying there? What's that all about, right? So that's new information. That's information that we weren't given in the initial accounts. It's information that we didn't have at first, but we now have because Peter's given it, and he's given it for a very specific and important reason. Because you see, under the Old Testament law, right, you had to have two or three witnesses to verify an account. Right, so we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, where you got to have two or three witnesses to verify an account of anything. And so what Peter essentially told these people was, hey, the Old Testament says I gotta have two or three. I took six with me. I doubled what your law required. I doubled it. And they saw the exact same thing that I saw. So now let's pick up in verse 13 and take it through verse 18. <coughs> which says he told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. So just understand what's being said here. The first he is Cornelius. The second he is Peter. Right? Now let's pick up in verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them, as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections. And praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance.
repentance that leads to life. Repentance that leads to life. So what we see here is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost had set a pattern for receiving the Spirit from that point on. From the day of Pentecost on, there was a pattern that had been established. And that the bat and that pattern is at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit would involve a noticeable transformation in the individual from the inside out, which would include including such things as an expression of increased joy. Spirit-inspired praise in tongues and boldness to speak about Christ. And for this reason, when Peter pointed out to the others in Jerusalem that Cornelius' household had spoken in tongues when they received the Holy Spirit, the Jews in this room, these people that had had an initial objection to what had happened here, right, were convinced that God was granting salvation through Christ to the Gentiles. And what we should not assume is that baptism in the Spirit has taken place if there is no outward evidence, such as speaking in tongues or any of the other things that we discussed earlier when I laid out the nine biblical principles by which you are to discern whether or not something is from the Spirit or not. Right? Follow me there. So we gotta understand here, right? What I'm saying here is that nowhere in the book of Acts is the baptism in the Holy Spirit simply assumed by faith or perception without outward evidence. There's gotta be outward evidence that it happened. If there ain't no outward evidence, if there's no outward change, right? If there's no change in the way you appear to the outside world, then there can't have been a change on the inside. That should be really, really simple and easy for every single one of us to understand. In order for there to be a change on the outside, there's got to be a change on the inside. No change on the outside, no change on the inside. That's what's happening here. So now let's talk about, right, this phrase, us who believed, right? So in the original Greek, right, that term describes a prior action or a condition, right? A prior act or condition, so a more literal translation would be God gave them the same gift as he gave, gave us also after believing, right? So that's uh, what he's saying there. He says, so if God gave the same gift he gave us, 
who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? So in other words, Peter's saying, hey, look, God gave them the same gift. He gave them, the Gentiles, the same gift that he gave the people that were all gathered in that upper room. Right. Jesus' initial core group, they were given, the Gentiles were given the same gift they got, that we got, when we believed. So why, why, why should I say, hey, why should I stand in God's way? If God's given the same gift, then God saw something in the same thing He saw in us, He saw in them. Which makes us, which makes them the exact same as us, which means there is no us in them. When it comes to followers of Christ, you're either a follower of Christ, or you're not a follower of Christ. And if you are a follower of Christ, you are all the same. You are all equal in God's sight. So this ultimately agrees with the historical facts that the disciples had believed Jesus and were spiritually saved and renewed by the Holy Spirit before receiving the baptism in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So the way this section ends is that it ends with these words. It ends with these words. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So in other words, Peter's great speech silenced all objections. As you see, God had baptized the Gentiles in the Holy Spirit with the same convincing evidence of speaking in tongues that he had done so with the disciples, with this group of Jewish people that were trying to argue that, hey, this can't happen to non-Jewish people. Because you see, this was the only sign they needed to accept the Gentiles' experience as authentic and real without a doubt. So now we're going to move in to this last section of Acts chapter 11. So in this last section of Acts chapter 11, what we're gonna see, right, is we're gonna see the foundation of the church at Antioch, right? It's going to describe an influx of Gentiles into the church, as well as Barnabas' stabilizing influence within this church. What we're going to see is we're going to see that the scattering that happened because of Stephen's death did not lead these early followers of Christ to go underground, which is what most of us would do if we were facing the exact same persecution that Stephen 
Steve that that little church was facing after what happened to Stephen, we would go underground, right? We wouldn't stay above ground and risk being caught up in this. No, 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 no. They didn't go underground. They continued on with their mission. <coughs> however, however, they were speaking only to Jews until some of them from Cyprus and Cyrene came to Antioch preaching to the non-Jews as well as to those who were Jewish with great success. And so what we're going to see is that Barnabas was sent from Jerusalem quite possibly because he was from Cyprus to investigate this success. So we know that Barnabas, you know what we know about Barnabas is that we know that Barnabas is described in Acts 4, 36 to 37 as a generous man, right? He is also further described as a man filled with the spirit and faith. We see that in London uh, 11, 24. And what we're also going to see is we're going to see that Barnabas brought Saul to Antioch, setting up the stage for the larger Gentile mission. And so at the very end of, it, it, towards the end of this section, of this last section of Acts chapter 11, we're going to see that the believers were first called Christians. So now we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, and we're going to go through verse 26, which says this. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch, where he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians. First at Antioch. So what we see is the New Testament believers did not assume, they did not assume that those who received God's gift of forgiveness 
spiritual salvation and the baptism in the Holy Spirit would automatically remain true to the Lord. Why? Why would they not assume that? Well, because temptations and worldly influences could still persuade new believers turn from their faith and devotion to Christ. And Barnabas here is given to us as an example of how mature believers ought to treat those who are still new in their faith. And that example is that they should, those of us who are mature in our faith, should and ought to be constantly encouraging and helping those who are new in their faith to grow in faith, love, and personal friendship with Christ and others in His church. So that's what we see happening in this section. So we're going to circle back around at the very end of this to the phrase um, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. When we get all done with all this, we're going to circle back around to that. So now we're going to pick up in verse 27 and we'll take it through verse 30, which is going to take us to the very end of Acts chapter 11. So here's what that says. It says, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up, and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. By Barnabas and Saul. Right, so what we see here is that Agabus and some other prophets that were not mentioned by name predicted a great famine. They predicted a very great famine. So we so there's a great deal of evidence to support such a famine having taken place during the reign of Claudius. That would have been the Roman Empire I'm assuming the Roman Emperor at the time that this was all taking place. And as we all know, the Romans were very good at keeping histories. They were very good at that. Right? And so, prophets were foundational to the church. We see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. And they were more than merely fortune tellers. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14, Verses 1 through 3. And so Barnabas and Saul were again, they were called to carry the gifts to Jerusalem. So now let's spend a little bit of time. Let's 
I'll go back and talk a little bit about prophets, right? So prophets in the New Testament, right? In the New Testament, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about prophets in the Old Testament. We're talking about prophets in the New Testament. So prophets in the New Testament were those spiritual wonders who were uniquely gifted in receiving and communicating direct revelations from God by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So one of their main concerns, one of their main concerns was the spiritual life and purity of the church. In other words, they were the spiritual guidors and they were the spiritual protectors of the New Testament church. So they would guide these New Testament churches, right? <coughs> um, giving them spiritual insight and they would guide them also by ensuring that they stay pure and true to the revealed word of God. So under the new covenant which was God which is God's plan of spiritual salvation and a renewed relationship with people through the life and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, prophets were chosen by God and were given power by the Holy Spirit to bring a message from God directly to His people. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about prophets. So like I said, now we're going to circle back around to the title of Christian and what it should mean and what it meant for the first time when it was first used in Antioch to describe the disciples and the followers of Jesus, right? So at the time this was written, right, Antioch was perhaps the largest and most important city in the eastern region of the Roman Empire. And as a result of the persecution and the scattering of Christians, the gospel message had spread to this city, and a strong church had arisen there. So in other words, the persecution that we saw earlier in Acts had a purpose, and that was to get the church out of Jerusalem and to spread it into the rest of the world. And so what we need to know also is about this is that Barnabas and Paul spent a great deal of time in Antioch both teaching and training the believers who were there. So what we need to understand now about the way that the early followers of Christ were addressed or what they were called or what they called themselves 
right, was that up until this point in time, they called themselves either believers, they called themselves believers, they called themselves disciples, they called themselves those belonging to the way, they called themselves saints, and they called themselves the church. But, 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 it was not until the message of Christ spread to Antioch that spread to this largest and most important city in the eastern region of the Roman Empire, right, that we begin to see Jesus' followers being called Christians. And this was done most likely by people outside the church, and it probably originated as an insult to Christ's followers, these people would have considered this name as a mark of honor because it directly identified them with Christ. So now let's talk a little bit about this word, Christian, that word that we use, this word that we abuse so often and so frequently in this world, right? So in Greek, the word Christian is Christianos, and it is literally translated as Little Christ. In other words, they were saying you're, you're a diminutive Christ. You're not a fully grown-up Messiah. You're not a fully grown-up anointed You're a little anointed one, right? So it was meant as a diminutive. It was meant as an insult. So this word only occurs three times in the New Testament, right? And so it was originally, 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 understand this, it was originally a term describing devoted servants and followers of Christ who were not afraid to separate themselves from the ungodliness, corruption, and immorality in society in order to identify with Christ. You're seeing something particular here, right? So they saw this not as an insult. They saw it as a badge of honor. And they and, and they saw it as a way of describing them as being devoted servants and devoted followers who were not afraid to separate themselves out from the ungodliness, from the corruption, and from the immorality that they saw throughout their society. And they did this so that they could further be identified with Christ. However, now let's come to what this term means today. What we have made this great term into in today's society. So what we have made this great term into into today's society is we have made it into a general name. Into a general name that is applied to almost anyone 
claims, the keyboard there is claims to believe in Jesus. And as a result, right, this term that should mean something has been nearly, has been, actually, what you say nearly, it has been completely emptied of the original New Testament meaning. Because you see, it should suggest the name of our Redeemer or Savior. It should suggest the name of our spiritual rescuer and restorer. And it should suggest the idea of our, and it should be all about the idea of our deep personal relationship and devotion to Christ. None of which, none of those things is what the term, what the title, what the name, however you want to describe this suggests in today's world. So what it should suggest is that we serve and obey Christ without reservation as our eternal Lord and Savior. Because you see, the claim, the name Christian should be a statement that Christ and His Word have become our supreme authority in life, and that our aim is to be more like Jesus. And it should also suggest that He is our only source of future hope. That He is our only source of future hope. And that's what we are about ready to see. And we move in to Acts chapter 12. Now we're going to move into Acts chapter 12. So remember, we're going through Acts chapter 12, verse 19a. So what's going on in Acts chapter 12? So what is going on in Acts chapter 12 is we now briefly return to Peter. Because you see, Acts chapter 12 is going to end with the death of Herod. It's gonna, it's, we're going to have death of Herod squashed in the middle that we're going to deal with tomorrow. And we're also going to deal with the beginnings of the first missionary journey of Paul. But before we get into that, right, what we're going to see is we're going to see a brief account of Peter, right, and we're going to see Herod arresting James, John's brother, and then executing him. And we're also going to see this same Herod arresting Peter. And we're going to see him holding Peter for trial after the Passover. So we're going to see the first 12 disciples martyred for their faith. We're going to see Peter arrested and being held in prison with the almost, almost certainty with most with a with a great deal of certainty that he is going to be executed shortly. So what we're then going to see is that we're gonna see an angel come and we're gonna see that same angel rescue Peter from the clutches of Herod and his minions. So now we're gonna pick up in next chapter twelve 
12 verse 1 and we're going to take it through verse 5. So here's what that says. It says it was about this it says it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James the brother of John put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to see as Peter also. This happened in the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. That'd be a total of sixteen soldiers, right? I hope I hope you agree with it, right? I hope you understand that four times four is sixteen. So Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after Passover. So what is going on here, right? So let's first deal with who we're talking about when we are talking about Herod. So the Herod that is referred to here is King Herod Agrippa the First, who was the grandson of Herod the Great, who was the Herod who was ruling when Jesus was born. Are you with me so far? So we're talking about this Herod. We're talking about Herod the Great's grandson. So what we also see here is that this Herod's persecution was swift. It seems he had James executed by the sword, which means that he had James decapitated, which means he had James die a shameful form of death for a Jewish man. So what we also need to understand about this, like I said, and then James was the first of the twelve disciples, the first of the twelve apostles, the first of Jesus' core group of followers to be executed, to suffer martyrdom, to die a martyr's death. But keep this in mind, right? James would not be the last one to die a martyr's death. As the vast majority of them would die a martyr's death at some point in time, the only one who would not die a martyr's death is John. Or at least that is what tradition would tell us. Right. So we know so we know that James was executed, he was the brother of John. So now we're going to come to the fact that Peter was seized. So Herod arrested James, had James executed. Then he arrests Peter, right? And he has Peter arrested near Passover. Right? So we get this kind of eerie feeling that maybe this might be deja vu all over again, right? Jesus is arrested near Passover. P- 
Peter is arrested, we have Passover. Is Peter now going to suffer the same fate that Jesus did? And the answer that you should be giving yourselves is no. Not yet, anyway. Not yet, anyway. <clears throat> so Peter was arrested near Passover because it pleased the Jews. So when, it, when they hear that term, the Jews, we're not talking about the Jewish people as a whole. We're not talking about the average normal Jewish man walking the street. What we're talking about is the Jewish leadership. It pleased Jewish leadership to shut this man up. Because this man was making a stink about something they didn't want nobody making a stink about. They wanted everybody to forget about the crazy man named Jesus who tried to overturn the apple cart in a way they didn't want the apple cart overturned. Right, everybody get that part? Good. Good, I hope you got that part. So, <coughs> so we see here that Peter was held by 16 men, and it's probably due to the outcome of all of the previous attempts to jail him. And then we see that this early church, right, was in constant and continual prayer for him, right? So what are we talking about there, right? So what are we talking about here? What are we talking about here? Right? New Testament believers responded. They responded to this opposition, to this persecution, with earnest prayer. Did you see the situation? Look impossible. Well, what do we mean by looks impossible? Well, it looked impossible because you see James had already died, right? And Herod had Peter in in the custody of 16 armed soldiers. So James has already died. And Peter is locked up in prison with no, uh, with no possibility of escape. But yet, but yet the early church lived. They lived. They didn't just hope and say, oh well, where he might be able to escape out of his London. They lived on a daily basis with the absolute assurance that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. That's James 5:16, And they prayed earnestly and they prayed continually, excuse me, continuously over Peter's situation. And their prayer was soon to be answered. So as we will see very, very shortly, right? Because Peter returns to a prayer meeting as we get into this section, right? As we're going to see, as we should already be seeing, right? The New Testament.
Testament churches often were engaged in prolonged times of what would be known today as corporate prayer, right? right? They were engaged in prolonged times of corporate prayer. And what we should need to understand about this, what we got to understand, we got to get this part, right? That God wants His people together frequently for unified, purposeful prayer. So we need to take note again of Jesus' words over in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13, when he says, My house will be called a house of prayer. So what we need to so here's what here's what I'm saying, right? Is that churches churches who claim to base their beliefs and practices and even their missions on the pattern established in the book of Acts and other New Testament writings must the key word there is must devote themselves to passionate prayer as a central focus of their worship. So what does that mean? What are we saying here? So what that means is that more than just a few minutes of prayer per service, it's more than just a few minutes of prayer one day a week. Because you see, in the early church, God's powerful presence and prayer meetings went hand in hand. Every time you see God's powerful presence manifested, manifesting itself, it came because the people of God were gathered together in prayer about something they needed God to do. So what, are, what am I saying there? What is going on here? What am I saying? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying it apart from prayer. No amount of preaching, no amount of teaching, no amount of singing, no amount of music, or no, or no activity, no amount of activities will bring the genuine power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Without prayer, none of those things matter. None of those things bring the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit without prayer. Prayer is what activates it. And Jesus' followers in the New Testament church join together constantly in prayer. And that is what we must do. And as we are going to see, as we get towards the end of this section, so now we're going to pick up in verse 6, what we're going to see in this section, right? So we're going to see that these New Testament believers, right, they had gathered together earnestly and were praying to God for Peter. And what we're about, what we're going to see in this next section, right, is we're going to see Peter get released because of these people's prayer. So we're going to start in verse 6 and we'll go through verse 11. So here's what it says. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. 
get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrist. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea what the angel was doing. He had, excuse me, but he had no idea what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. And Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Were hoping would happen. Right? So what we see here, what we get here, that Peter was being held in the innermost part of this jail. We don't know exactly where this jail was. <coughs> More than likely it was in the center of the city of Jerusalem. Somewhere that Herod would have easy access to. Somewhere that his soldiers would have easy access to. But we're not told exactly where this jail was. We're just told that Peter was held in the innermost part. He was held in the deepest, darkest, dankest dungeon that this jail had as an attempt, as a way to pro to attempt to prevent his escape. Right, and so by being held in this innermost part of the channel, right, it required him to pass through two gates to get to the iron gate, which was the gate that led out into the city, which would have been the most fortified gate in the entire jail, because it didn't really matter if you got through the first gate, didn't really matter if you got through the second gate, because you were still inside the prison, but if you got out through the third gate, right, then that meant you had escaped prison, and that was no good. Just as it's no good today. It's no good today for the prisoner to be able to escape. That's why you see prisons built with layers of security even still today. However, so we got to understand here, right? So, as we move through this angel's visitation, right? It appears almost humorous, right? Because here's Peter sitting, here's Peter in his cell asleep. Not entirely sure what is going to happen to him. He's got a pretty good idea that he is probably 
going is going to be put on trial, and the outcome of this trial has already been predetermined, and that Herod is going to have him executed. He is pretty darn sure that is what is going to happen to him. So it happens while this man, while Peter is still asleep. This angel comes to him, right? So an angel, so an angel appears within his cell, and he lights up this cell. But Peter don't wake up, because Peter is sleeping so soundly that he don't even notice that the deepest, darkest dungeon in this cell, in this prison, has been lit up like the 4th of July. He doesn't realize that. He doesn't see it. He doesn't notice. Notice that. Why? Probably because he's so exhausted. He's trying to conserve his energy for what he knows is going to be probably the biggest ordeal of his life the following day. And so, what happens? The angel actually has to touch Peter. He has to tap him on the shoulder and say, Hey, Pete, wake up. Wake up. Wake up. We're getting out of here, Pete. We're getting out of here. We're getting out of here. So what happens? He taps him on the shoulder. Hey, Pete, Pete, Pete. Boom. We're getting out of here, right? So to wake Peter up, he had to strike him. But what we then see, right, is we see Peter... I think he's seeing a vision. Until he went outside the gate and they blocked down the street. In other words, Peter thinks, hey, I'm seeing a vision. I'm seeing things that I ought not be seeing. I, I'm seeing something that might be hap- might happen, but I, I sure don't think it's happening right now. Until he gets a block outside the prison and he says, Hold on now, I ain't still asleep. I done pinched myself when I woke I didn't wake up and it hurt. <clears throat> so he then gained his senses about a block from where this prison was located. And he stated that he had been rescued from Herod and from the Jews who had hoped to put him to death. So now let's pick up in verse 12 and take this through verse 19a, which takes us to the end of this section of Acts chapter 12. And And it says, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark. Where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. Get out of your mind, they said, <coughs> they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. When they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison.
prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter after Herod had had a thorough search made for him and did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. So it begins to that Peter then went to the prayer meeting that was happening over at Mary's house. And so who was this Mary? Who was this Mary that they're talking about? This, this Mary was the mother of John, also called Mark, who is the man who wrote the Gospel of Mark, who we would later learn from Paul's writings was the cousin of Barnabas. That comes from Colossians 4.10. And so the large house that we see here suggests some wealth. And since this large house is called Mary's, it's called her house. It's not called her husband's house. It's not called her son's house. It's not called anything else, right? It's called her house. That makes her more than likely a widow. She was a widow. Right? And so the discussion that is going on here while Peter, by the way, is still knocking at the door. So again, this is kind of a human situation. Peter's standing there, knock, 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 knock. Hey, y'all, let me in. Knock, 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 knock. Hey, y'all, let me in. It me, Peter, let me in right now. I'm on the run from the law. Let me in. I really don't want to be standing out here knocking on your door all night long. Or all morning long. Right? So there's discussion that's going on while Peter is still standing out there. He's well not this servant girl go go. And I actually seen Peter standing at the door knocking. Or if it was Peter's angel. Because you see back then in the ancient world of some people believed that the guardian angels of people was able to ones they was guarding. You know, they figured, hey, this old Pete's guardian angel, who's knocking on the door, to let us know, A, that Peter's safe, or B, he's dead. Completely forgetting the fact that option C is that it's Peter himself, who's been miraculously rescued from the clutches of Herod by an angel, angel of God. So that is where we're going to pick up tomorrow. Because you see, we saw here at the very end of all of this, right? How Herod reacted. How Herod wanted to put these guards to death. Because how dare you let this man escape again. I wanted this man killed. And you let this man escape. So now I'm going to kill you. And so what we're going to see tomorrow is we're going to see Herod's fate. Right? We're going to see how God ultimately deals with Herod. And then we're going to see the beginnings of Paul's first missionary journey. 
So in order for you to be prepared for that discussion, here's what you gotta read for tomorrow. So you gotta read Second Chronicles 26 to 28. You gotta read Romans chapter 13. You gotta read Psalm 23, 1 through 6, and Proverbs 20, verse 11.